Wonderful to worship with you this morning. Well, I am so excited to be with you today. Such a joy to be with Fellowship Bible Church, particularly here at the beginning of 2024, as you are this year uh, emphasizing this call of God to look outward, to look beyond those who already know Jesus, who, who, who already are part of this community or other church communities, and, and, and you this year are, are really looking outward, and I think that's exciting. You know, I love it when churches have a mission statement, but it's so much better than that if that mission statement isn't just sort of words on a wall. When, when, when the church is actually trying to live that out, and that's what you're doing, that's what you do each and every year, but, but this year as you sort of focus in on looking outward and sharing Christ with other people. And you know what makes this really neat is that as you, this year, uh, sort of focus on sharing Christ with those outside of these walls, is that God, right now, is preparing people for your message, for the message of Jesus. He's doing that. He's, he's already working in the hearts of, and minds and, and, and circumstances of your family and of, of, of your neighbors and of your coworkers. So as you begin to engage them, there's a, a reception that can take place. Maybe not in every case, but God is working. He's always working. He's not just working on our side of the equation. He's working on the, the side of the equation of, of those whom you will share with. And as a result, I think that 2024 is setting up to be a great year, sweet year of, of joy as you see people take their next steps towards Jesus. So I've had the privilege of sort of experiencing that with a, a number of people, seeing them take those steps towards Christ. And, and one particular fellow um, that I've enjoyed sort of seeing that happen in the last couple of years is a fellow by the name of Adam. And I met Adam at a church almost two years ago, and I was invited to come in and speak at this church for three Wednesday nights in a row. And I was up on stage with the pastor, and the pastor was asking me questions that are commonly asked by uh, unbelievers. Questions like, well, why should I trust the Bible? Or why should I be a Christian when there's so many hypocrites? Or, you know, what about pain and suffering? Where is God in that? And so the pastor would ask me questions like that, and we would have a conversation, and I would provide some answers. But at the end of each session, each Wednesday night, there would be this open time where anybody could ask any questions. And Adam was there. Now, I don't even know how Adam found out about this event because he, he wasn't a part of this church community. He wasn't part of any church community. But somehow he found himself at the first Wednesday night and he came to each of the three nights and every Wednesday night he would ask a question. And then he would stay after and he would linger and he would want to ask me more questions. Well, of course, I wanted to find out more about Adam and his story, what was sort of bringing about these questions. And so we went out to lunch and I heard more of his story. But each time that we got together, he would bring up more questions. In fact, every sort of successive lunch that we had, and they were spread out over, over many months, it was as if the, the questions became more um, uh, uh, just anxious for him. <laughs> He, he was just spinning and spinning, and any time that we'd sort of talk about something, he'd say, but what about this, and what about this? And he just seemed to be trapped in his own mind, almost as if he would never get out of it. And I, I really wondered, like, what, where, where is this going here with Adam? I, I, I thought, he's just not even going to want to meet with me anymore. 
because it's just the way his head is spinning. And we got together for a lunch this last summer. And right when Adam came in the door of the restaurant we we're meeting at, his whole countenance was different. I mean, I noticed it right from the start because he was always so serious and kind of, you know, just heavy laden and there was just kind of a joy and a friendliness to him. And so we ordered our food and we sat down and a few minutes into the meal, he said, I need to tell you something. <laughs> he said, we've been looking at all these questions and I finished reading your book. So I wrote a book called Questioning God, which answers a lot of questions that non-Christians have. And then uh, um, after I read that book, I was reminded of a book that somebody gave me a long time ago by Lee Strobel called The Case for Christ. So I read that too. And then when I finished with that, because I still had some questions, I, I remembered another book that someone had given me many years before that. You see, God had been preparing him, right? It was a book by C.S. Lewis called Near Christianity. <laughs> He said, so I finished reading those three books and I've decided that God is real and Jesus has died for our sins. And you could see his this anxiety is just sort of lifted. There was peace where there was such strife before God had been working, right? And I sort of stepped into that place where God had already been working and was able to see this great uh, joy sort of unfold. And I believe that kind of joy can unfold for you too in this year. As you begin to look outward and to, to, to share Jesus with people. <laughs> now, when I had that conversation this summer with Adam and I came home, what do you think I talked to my wife about? It wasn't about the traffic, right? <laughs> it wasn't about what I was working on that day or the trip we might take the next month, right? It was about Adam, right? Because of that joy. <laughs> I mean, how could I not talk about that? I mean, in many ways, what unfolded there with Adam is why I do what I do. And whys are super, super important. And they're really important because as, as we venture into something, something that might cost us something, something that might call for commitment, something that might uh, cause us to sort of move into areas that are, feel a little bit uncomfortable for us, if we don't have our whys settled, right, then we'll often shrink back, right? And we won't do what we probably ought to do in a situation. And because that's the case, because we need to have our whys settled in order to sort of motivate us and sustain us, what I want to do with you this morning is to walk through some whys. Some whys in regard to why you as a church should be looking outward this year. Looking to share Jesus. Looking to develop relationships with, with non-Christians. So here we go. Here are some whys, some whys relative to why you should look outward. So the first why is this. We should look outward. You as a church should look outward because Jesus himself looked outward. So one of my favorite passages in scripture is in John chapter 4. And at the beginning of John chapter 4, Jesus is in Judea. So Judea is sort of the southern part of what we would call Israel today. It's where Jerusalem is. Jesus was probably in Judea for some of the, the annual festivals that the, the Jews celebrated. But we see at the beginning of, of chapter 4 that Jesus is wanting to travel to Galilee. That's where he lived. That was his hometown up in, in Galilee, in sort of the northern shores. Now between Judea in the south and Galilee in the north was Samaria. 
So if you were going to travel from one to the other, the easiest route, the quickest route, would be to go through Samaria. And yet, most Jews wouldn't do that. Because as you know, many of you probably know, the Jews hated the Samaritans. They looked at the Samaritans as despicable. They, they were those who had sort of meshed the worship of God with other gods in their history. There were those who, who worshipped uh, God in, in their land instead of coming to Jerusalem, to the, to the temple of the Lord in, in, there in Jerusalem. And so the Jews looked down on the Samaritans. And if they had to travel from Judea to Galilee, they would go around Samaria. And yet when we look to the beginning of John chapter 4, we see these words beginning in verse 3. So he, that's Jesus, left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. Well, not physically he didn't, right? Again, almost any sort of respectable Jew in that day would go around Samaria. But what we see here is that Jesus had to go through Samaria. And he had to go through Samaria because Jesus was all about sort of looking beyond those who already knew who he was or all beyond those who were already God-fearers or beyond those who were already Jews. He was about looking outward. And because he was about looking outward, he wasn't going to travel around Samaria. He was going to travel through it. In fact, Scripture says that he had to go through Samaria. And of course, when he gets to Samaria, he meets a, a woman at a well, a woman with quite a history, right? She's been married five times before, and she's living with a, another man, right? She's, she's way on the outward side. <laughs> and yet Jesus strikes up a conversation with her, and he reveals to her that he is the Messiah. And she runs back to her village, and she tells people there, and they come out, and they meet Jesus, and many of them follow Christ as well. <laughs> Jesus had to go through Samaria. Because God was preparing things there for him, preparing people to turn to him. Jesus was about looking outward. We see something similar in Luke chapter 19. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus is traveling through Jericho. And this is later in Jesus' ministry. And so Jesus was sort of a known commodity. He, he, he had done a lot of miracles already. His teaching had sort of become known. And so he had a crowd with him wherever he went. And so he's, he's coming into Jericho, and there's lots of people there. And like any city or town in that day, uh, among those in the city were tax collectors. Now, we already talked about that the Samaritans were despicable in the eyes of the Jews. But if there were any group of people that were just as despicable, maybe even more so, it was the tax collectors, because they were Jewish people who were collecting taxes for the Romans, the oppressors. And oftentimes, right, they would sort of skim some money off the top, the tax collectors would, to sort of uh, pad their own pockets. And then, among the tax collectors, there were chief tax collectors. So they're top of the pyramid scheme, and they're taking even more money off the top, <laughs> And so if, there were any, if there's anybody that the, the Jewish people hated, as much as the Samaritans, it would have been chief tax collectors. And in that city of Jericho, there was a chief tax collector. His name was Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, as you may have sung when you were a child in Sunday school, was a wee little man. <laughs> and, and so here comes this crowd through with Jesus. As Jesus is coming through Jericho, and there's no way that, that uh, Zacchaeus would ever see Jesus because of the crowd. And so he gets up into a tree. <laughs> And Jesus eventually comes by that tree, and we see 
in Luke chapter 19, that when Jesus reaches that spot, he looked up and said this to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Must? He didn't have to stay at Zacchaeus' house. Again, no respectable Jew would have stayed at Zacchaeus' house. Not the chief tax collector. And if you went to his house, who was going to be hanging out at his house? It was probably going to be other tax collectors, other sinners, which is exactly what the case was. And yet Jesus says, I must come to your house. And he did have to come to his house if he was about looking outward, if he was about looking beyond those who were already God-fearers, right? Who already recognized him as the Messiah. And so he said, Zacchaeus, I must come to your house today. Jesus goes to his house, and we, we don't really know what went on there conversationally. It's not recorded for us, but we see the results of it because Zacchaeus has a complete change of heart, right? And he says, I'm going to give you know, half of what I have to the poor, and anybody I took money from that I shouldn't have, I'm going to give them four times what I took from them. His heart has changed, and Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house because this man, this man, Zacchaeus, he too, as a son of Abraham, a child of the promise, a child of God. And then note this in verse 10, it says, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Everybody else, right? All the respectable Jews had sort of have, had discounted the possibility that anybody like Zacchaeus would ever come to know the Lord, or that God would have any interest in him. And yet Jesus says, no. This man, too, is a son of, of Abraham, and this is who I've come to, to, to minister to. Notice uh, again, verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That is Jesus' mission statement right there. That's what he was all about. He was about looking outward, looking uh, beyond those who already knew Jesus. <laughs> and so the first reason, the first reason why we too, why you as a church should look outward in this year and in every year is because Jesus himself looked outward. He was on mission. Second reason. Second reason we should look outward and be on mission is because Jesus calls us to look outward and be on mission. So it wasn't just Jesus' mission statement to do that, to seek and save the lost, but he's calling us into that purpose as well. Now today, it seems to me that we live in an era, sort of, of a, a pandemic of purposelessness. People are just seeking to find sort of purpose and meaning. And it's not just outside the church, it's inside the church as well. And we see it at all life stages. So you see, uh, kids and they're sort of growing up and they, you know, they're just, they're just kind of lost. I, I, I was playing tennis with this, uh, this one uh, teenage boy, he's about 15 years old, he's a really good player, um, but he's not too into it. He's just, it's not, you can kind of tell it's not really his sort of uh, kind of life sort of dream or goal or whatever the case might be. So I asked him, I said, so, hey, when you're not playing tennis and you're not at school, like, like, you know, what are the things that interest you? And man, he, he just had like a really strange look on his face, like, what interests me? Like, nothing really. Like, I just look at my phone. He, he, there's no, no purpose there, really, right? And then, right, we see kids, and then they go to the college, and, and they're just, they try this major, and they try this major, and they try that, and they, they don't really know what they, they want to do. 
It's just kind of floating around. And we can say, okay, that's all right. We're all, we're all just sort of figuring out at that stage. But, but then after that, right, we, we see that people get into the workplace and they work someplace for three or four years. Like, is this it? Like, where's, where's my meaning? Where's my purpose in this? Well, okay, I'll start a family. So you start a family, maybe some meaning and purpose because there are kids around. But then the kids leave and people get lost. Like, what do I do now? I don't have kids anymore, right? Someone's worked for an entire career and they get done with their career and I I don't even know if I want to quit working because I don't know what I will do, right? People get lost. There's so few who have sort of a sense of meaning or purpose. But as Christians, we should never be without meaning or purpose. And it's because Jesus has called us into this purpose of seeking and saving the lost. And we see this, in particular, as Jesus relates to his disciples. So as Jesus is just meeting those who would be his disciples, he he meets the the first of them, Peter and Andrew, while while they're fishing. He says to them, kind of first words right off the bat, follow me and I will make you fishers of men and women, people. That's, That's my aim for you. That's the goal. I want you to follow me, not so that you become better fishermen, right? I don't want you to follow me even, I don't, I'm, my end goal isn't just that you become worshipers of God or Bible studiers or churchgoers, right? It's not my end goal. My end goal is that you would follow me and the result would be that you would be a fisher of people, that you would be looking outward, that you would be a part of my mission to seek and save the lost. He sets that out right in the very beginning with his disciples. And then if we fast forward, right, to the end of his time with his disciples here on earth, what does Jesus say? We can see some of those words right at the end of Matthew 28 when Jesus gives what we call the Great Commission. He says, go and make disciples. That's what I told you I wanted you to do from the very beginning. And just in case you know, you've, you've forgotten it along the way, let me remind you right here at the end, what I want you to do, what I want you to be about is, is going and making disciples. My heart is to seek and save the lost. And my heart for you is that you two would enter into that purpose and you would be a part of seeking and saving the lost. That's what he told his disciples. Now, I've had a few people along the way say, well, Jesus' words in the Great Commission were really to his disciples. They're not really to us. If we're involved in the disciple-making, that's fine, but those aren't really words for us. Those were specifically words to the disciples. But here's what I want you to notice here. Jesus says, go and make disciples, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he says, I want you to teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. So the disciples were to teach people to obey everything that Jesus commanded them. Well, one of the things that Jesus had just commanded them there was to go and make disciples. So the disciples were to go and make disciples and tell those people to go and make disciples. So today, if you know Jesus, it's because through the centuries, someone has gone and made a disciple and taught them to go and make disciples And have taught them to go and make disciples. And you are the fruit of people walking in the mission of Jesus. You see, Jesus 
is, is about seeking and saving the lost, but it wasn't just his mission. It's a mission that he's handed off to you and I. And so it shouldn't be a surprise then when Paul later on gives us a title as believers. He says that we're ambassadors, that we're ministers of reconciliation. Now, if you're in a, in a job and you have one position and then you say you get promoted to its new job title, right? It's not just words. With that title comes new responsibilities. There's things you need to do now and things you need to stop doing because of that new role, because of that new title. And Paul says you have this title as believers. You are ambassadors. You are ministers of reconciliation, He says there's things really that you're to be about because of that. Maybe some things you need to stop doing because of that. You've been given that title. Paul says live that out. That is your purpose. It was Jesus' purpose and he's handed that off to you. Third reason. Third reason we should look outward. Share Jesus with others. Develop relationships with those who don't know Christ yet. The third reason is People are in trouble. People are in trouble. Now, in my conversations with people, and the surveys sort of bear this out, most people in America still believe in God. About 80% still have a a belief in at least a higher authority. There's something out there that's sort of in control of things. And, And most people also have this sort of Wishful thinking, at least it's wishful thinking, maybe it's more than wishful thinking, that there's something beyond this life, that this life doesn't just end. Most people believe those things. Furthermore, they believe that if there is something after this, and there is some sort of judgment as to whether we get to be a sort of on sort of the good side of what might be after this life, the way you get to that good side is by being a good person. And Almost everyone thinks that they're a good enough person. But Jesus says that isn't true. Jesus says we aren't good enough to be made right with God and to be with him forever. He says we're in trouble. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verses 23 and 24, he says, you are from below and I am from above. You belong to this world, I do not. That is why I said that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, you will die in your sins. That sounds to me like we're in trouble. Jesus, he he really graphically displays this in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. We're familiar with John uh, chapter 3 and verse 16, right? For God so loved the world that whoever believes in his one and only son, right? And enjoy eternal life, right? We, We know that verse there, but we often sort of skip over quickly John 3, 14 and 15. But in John 3, 14 and 15, we really get this sort of graphic understanding, not only of what Christ has done for us, sort of the way to life with him, but also our condition before we look to him. So Jesus says in John 3, 14 and 15, he says, says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the son of man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. 
Now, okay, there's son of man, that's Jesus. There's eternal life. Okay, we got to look at him. But what's this Moses and the snake in the desert business, right? If we're going to understand Jesus' illustration, we have to know about Moses and the snake in the desert. Well, that takes us back to Numbers 21. Because in Numbers 21, we see that the people of Israel had, had come out of Egypt, but boy, they were just grumbling and grumbling against God. Everything that God told them to do, they didn't like it. And, and, and eventually, God has to teach them a lesson. And we see that in Numbers 21. God sends a whole bunch of poisonous, venomous snakes. And these snakes begin to bite the people of Israel. And they're dying left and right. It's just a matter of time before everyone goes down. People are in trouble. And they cry out to Moses and they say, Moses, talk to God. You know, we've, we've sinned. Ask God to do, do something here or we're all going to die. And so God tells Moses, what I want you to do is I want you to take this bronze pole and fashion a bronze snake around it and whoever looks at it will be saved. And I want you to consider that scene there. Everyone's dying left and right, right. Everyone's in trouble. Again, just a matter of time before everyone goes down. And God says, hey, there's one way out of this mess. And that mess is by looking at that pole, that one pole. There weren't four poles. If, if, if you heard from a neighbor that, hey, hey, go look at that pole and you, you'll be saved. And you said, well, you know, I don't really like bronze. Are there any silver poles or any gold poles? Right? You'd be out of luck. There's only one pole to look at. You couldn't go anywhere else. There isn't any way to be saved. You couldn't try to, you know, push the venom out of, out of your bloodstream. You couldn't try to work it off, right? You were going down. You were in trouble unless you looked at that pole. And Jesus says, in the same way, if you do not look at me, the Messiah, lifted up on a pole, you will not be saved. You're in trouble apart from me. It doesn't matter how good a life you've tried to live. It will always fall short. A few verses down in John chapter 3, we see this in verse 17. It says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Well, that sounds pretty good. Like, okay, he's not, he's not going to condemn us. Like, maybe we're all good. But then we look in verse uh, 18, and it says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. That's our default position. People are in trouble. Your friends and your neighbors and your colleagues and your family, if they don't know Jesus, they're in trouble. And I hate to say it, but many Christians are kind of flimsy on this point. They recognize Jesus as their savior, but they act and they say things like, well, they'll, they'll kind of be all right. They're, 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 they're good people. No, they're in trouble. And one of the reasons we have to look outward and we need to share Jesus with people is because they are in trouble. Fourth reason, fourth reason why we should look outward, why we should be on mission, why we should share Jesus with people. It's because we know the cure now and it would be selfish to keep it to ourselves. So on the screen there, I think it's a picture of Al Nykamp. It's not, a, it's not a kind of a grainy picture there. It's the best I could find. Um, Al uh, had quite a life, really. So he, as a, as a young boy, he, 
He bit his tongue. A lot of kids, we bite their tongue at some point. He started bleeding because he bit his tongue, except that it wouldn't stop bleeding. And so he found out at a pretty young age that he had hemophilia, right? And so that was going to be a condition that he was going to have to deal with the rest of his life. Well, as a teenager, he, he then got into a, a bicycle accident. And he was bleeding, and so he needed blood transfusions because uh, they weren't able to stop his, his uh, bleeding really quickly, right? Except that the blood that he received was tainted. And so he got hepatitis C, and, and he got cirrhosis of the liver. And then, as an adult, he went in and had some tests, and he had cancer spots on his so he had hemophilia, had cirrhosis of the liver, and he had cancer. Three strikes. And then someone suggested, you know, all three of these conditions can be taken care of with a liver transplant. And he waited, and he waited in line until there was a time when he could get a liver, and he did. And literally, in, right, in, in, in the midst of that operation, when that new liver was put in, all three of his conditions were taken care of. No more hemophilia, no more cirrhosis of the liver, right? Because he didn't have that liver anymore. No more cancer spots. Pretty amazing. A cool story. And if Al was up here and he was sharing about that, you'd probably have warm feelings towards him, right? Because of, of this really neat story of how all these conditions were taken care of because of this transplant, right? But what if, and I'm just making up this part of the story, what if... From that point on, you, you just hung out with Al a lot. And along the way, Al met other people who had conditions like he did, who, who, who struggled with you know, d- different issues related to the liver. But what if in those interactions that Al had with other people, he never said anything about the own, his own cure that he experienced? Maybe even if someone didn't know about that possibility and they could be cured by getting a, a liver transplant, he still was mum about it. Like, after a while, wouldn't that strike you as odd? Like, it seems so sort of selfish, so unkind, so gracious. Like, why wouldn't you let other people know about the cure that you've experienced, right? And I think you see where I'm going here. If you found any encouragement in Christ at all, if, if shame has been replaced by forgiveness in your life, if where there was once anxiety, there's now peace, right? If you've come to see joy where, where there was despair before and hope, and you found that in Jesus, like why, why would you keep that cure to yourself, right? It would seem, again, ungracious or unkind or selfish if that was the case. So Pin Gillette, some of you might be familiar with Pin Gillette if you're into magic, magic shows of sorts. Um, he's one half of the famous Pin and Teller uh, magic show that has uh, um, been in Las Vegas for years. Pin is an atheist. He actually grew up going to church, but as a high schooler, he... Turned away from the faith. And he's a vocal atheist, but on one occasion he, he recounted a, a situation where he was approached by a man after a show that he did in Vegas. 
So he had done this show, and he oftentimes will stay afterwards and sort of mingle a little bit with the crowd and have conversations. And he said there was this man that was kind of lingering in the background, and, and he'd seen that before. He knew eventually that, that man would come forward and want to, want to talk to him, and, and the man did. And he, he said that the man said very nice things to him about his show and what he liked, and it was just very respectful, he liked his tone, and those kinds of things. And then he said the man pulled out a pocket New Testament. And he gave it to Penn. He just said, you know, I just was thinking about you and I, I thought that maybe this would be valuable for you. And I can't remember exactly what the words were, but, but Penn recounts this situation here. And it's very interesting because Penn, again, he's a vocal atheist and he certainly didn't come to faith as a result of that incident. But he respected what the man did. In fact, this is what he said. Penn said this, he says, if you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and keep, people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize or not share Jesus with them? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not to tell them that? This is an atheist who's saying this. He's like, if you really believe this to be true, and he knew that this man who was telling it to him believed it to be true, like, I respect you telling me that because it would seem hateful to me that if you didn't tell me that, if you really believe that this is the road to life, that this is the cure, why would you keep it to yourself, right? And so we too must not keep this message of Jesus to ourselves. Fifth reason. Fifth reason why we should look outward, be on mission. <laughs> it's because no one is too lost to be saved. No one is too lost to be saved. So when I was growing up, I grew up in Fresno, California. It was sort of in the middle of California. Um, kind of a sleepy town then, so we didn't get sort of big acts really coming to Fresno very, very often. Um, I do remember, though, as a, as a kid, maybe I was about 12 or so, uh, going to the Fresno Convention Center because there was a man speaking there by the name of Nicky Cruz. Now, Nicky, he grew up in, in Puerto Rico, um, a part of a large family. His parents were into witchcraft. His father beat him regularly. His mom was often in sort of a trance-like state, and in those states she would call Nicky the son of Satan, <laughs> Now, in that environment, growing up in that kind of environment, he became a very violent young man. In fact, when his family went to New York City, at some point was going to live there, they eventually left New York, but they left Nicky there as a young teenage boy. And Nicky could fend for himself. Soon he joined a gang, the Mau Mau Gang, which was one of the most vicious gangs in New York City. And he became their warlord in just six months. He found himself in jail often, as you can imagine, because he had on his record 16 different stabbings. And the court-appointed psychiatrist said that Nicky was destined for prison, the electric chair, and hell. And then there was a man named David Wilkerson. He was a preacher of a country church in Pennsylvania. And he kept getting these urges and these nudges. I, I need to go to New York like you know, occasionally just meet with the, the kids there. I've heard of the gangs there, and somebody needs to reach out to them. So he begins to go periodically and, and meet some of the, the, the teenagers that are on the street, and, and he meets eventually 
Nikki Cruz. <laughs> and Nikki wants nothing to do with him. In fact, he says, if you come near me, I'll kill you. There's his switchblade open. And David Wilkerson, in response, says, you can cut me into a thousand pieces and every piece will cry, I love you. Eventually, David invites Nikki and his gang to come to this gathering where, where David is going to be speaking. And Nikki goes, but he just is, figures that he's just going to go and kind of mess up the event and, you know, snicker and, and just kind of make a joke of it all. And yet, Nikki describes that time hearing David speak that day like he was on the operating table. And he says, as if Jesus came alongside me and cut me open and took out my old heart and he put in my new heart. <laughs> and his life was changed from that point on. People couldn't believe it. His gang couldn't believe it. The other gangs couldn't believe it. But he's an old man now, as you can see in the picture there. <laughs> But through all the years he's been going and he's been reaching out to gang members and going into prisons and telling people about Jesus. Now, no one would have believed that was the future of Nikki. Certainly not the court appointed a psychiatrist, right? And yet that was the future because no one is too lost to be saved. I love the story of King Manasseh that we find in 2 Chronicles 33. King Manasseh was one of the, he might have been, I think the longest king in, in Judah's history, 50 plus years. He probably should have been a God-fearing king as Father Hezekiah was, but he wasn't. As soon as he became king, when his father died, he, he went a completely different direction. We see in the scriptures that he built altars to foreign gods and that he worshipped starry hosts. He was into witchcraft and sorcery and he sacrificed children to the idols. <laughs> and eventually God said, enough's enough. He brings the king of Assyria in and they carry off Manasseh by a ring in his nose, literally a ring in his nose. And they drag him off like cattle to Assyria. And we see that once, that once Manasseh is there, off in exile, that he seeks the favor of the Lord and he humbles himself. We see in 2 Chronicles 33, 12. Humbles himself before the Lord. And it says, and when he prayed to him, when he prayed to the Lord, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. And then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. Manasseh? Really? Someone like him? Someone like him would be sort of brought into the fold and forgiven and become sort of this child of God that would live with God forever? Really, Manasseh? <laughs> yes, Manasseh. Because no one is too lost to be saved. <laughs> you know, sometimes we cancel people out. We think oh, there's too, they're just too far gone. You may have done that with a neighbor already, or a coworker, or someone in your family. They're just so far out there, they're just, too, they're just lost. No one's too lost to be saved. <laughs> there's two examples I've given you, the example of Nikki Cruz, or the example of, of Manessa. <laughs> Those, those are sort of examples where people are sort of clearly lost on the outside. But you know, there, there are people all around you who are just as lost that may, or may not look so lost on the outside. So this next picture is a picture of a girl named Anne. And she grew up in a family that knew nothing about Jesus. She never went to church. She never knew anything about a Bible. She, if you were to ask her who Jesus was, she'd have no clue whatsoever. 
She uh, was in a family that was uh, broken about the age of 10. Her father went after many lovers. It was very, a very shameful situation. So she poured herself into tennis. <laughs> she was very good at it. So she could get some sort of, sort of, you know, sort of feeling of sort of success and meaning in that, right? At least for a while. She played and played. She became one of the best players in the United States. She went to college. She was an All-American as a, in singles and, and doubles her freshman year. And she was unhappy as she could possibly be. She figured, well, maybe the problem is that I, I need to go to a, a, a different school. And so even though she had such great success as a freshman, she transferred to another school. And there she met a woman. It was actually her assistant coach at her new team who, who, who began to sort of take her under her wing and share Jesus with her. And this one who was so lost, who knew nothing of Jesus, come to fall in love with Jesus. And her life flipped. She met this man in college, and they had four, four children who today all love Jesus. <laughs> and the youngest of her four children is now in ministry. And, a, and, and that young daughter, a, a, she, a, she tells people why she's in ministry, and, and she's in ministry to, to other college women. She says, the reason I'm in ministry is because there was a woman <laughs> who shared with my mother while she was in college. And it changed our family. It made our family. And I want to do that for other women as well. As you might have guessed, that woman is my wife. <laughs> and that fourth daughter is our, our daughter. Sixth reason we should look outward. Sixth and final reason. Why we should share Jesus with other people and be on mission. It's because Jesus is the greatest. And he's the most wonderful the most beautiful, the most genuine person anyone could ever know. You know, you look through the Gospels and if you just start looking for the character of Jesus, but just, it's, just, oh, it's just beautiful. He's gentle and he's humble. He's actually trying not to get a crowd in many cases. He's servant-minded. He's, he's self-sacrificing even to the point of death. Many long days for him and, and nights where he's hardly sleeping, right? He's sacrificing in that way. He's truthful. He's unafraid. It doesn't matter if people have sort of the power to, to hurt him. He's still going to speak the truth to them, right? He's patient. He's wise. He's, he's caring. <laughs> he's forgiving of even people that no one would el else would ever forgive. He's willing to forgive, right? He's, he's, he's no respecter of persons. He, he would hang out with people who were the dregs of society and those who were respected, those who were poor, and those who were rich. He was, he was, again, no respecter of persons. This is our Jesus. He's beautiful, right? I love how way he's described in the book of Revelation. He's given so many titles like faithful and true and the bright morning star and the alpha and omega and the rider on the white horse and all these sort of grand uh, Idols there. He's wonderful. <laughs> so there's no need to hide Jesus. Some of you might have a friend, maybe somebody you grew up with, or maybe someone in your family, and they're quite quirky. Maybe they're a little obnoxious. Maybe they're rude. So you're, kind of, you're sort of friends with them, but you don't show them off to anybody else, right? You kind of keep them in the background. Right? If you meet with them, you meet with them by yourself, right? You don't go and show them off to your friends. But you don't have to do that with Jesus. Because he's beautiful and he's wonderful. We should want to introduce him to your friends. So 
On the screen, there is a picture of uh, my brother and his wife, Laura. And my brother, he passed away about two years ago after a six-year battle of cancer. And as you can imagine, that they were married about 35 years, that um, it's been you know, it's pretty rough on his wife, Laura. She loves Jesus, though, and she's come to see how wonderful he is. So for the first couple of weeks after my brother had passed, her three adult sons were around. They were around the house, and they, you know, they stayed there in the evening and were with her in, in those first couple of weeks. But eventually they needed to go back. Two, two of them don't even live in the same city, right? So they, they had to leave their mother alone. So my wife and Laura, they have a really good relationship. And so it was going to be the first night where Laura was going to be alone after my brother had died. And she texts my wife. She says, well, this is the first night where it's just me and Jesus alone. I'm not alone. It's just me and Jesus alone. Now, why would she say that? Why would she find comfort in that? It's because Jesus is the most wonderful, most comforting, most caring person there is. And she knew that she wouldn't be alone, but she would be with Jesus. And she also knew that the one that she had loved on this earth would be with that same Jesus and was and is with that same Jesus today, right? That's our Jesus. That's who we get to give away, So there you have it, six different reasons why you should look outward in this year. Share Jesus with others, build relationships with non-Christians. There's other reasons, I'm sure, but I hope that these will sustain and motivate you this year. Now as I end here, I'm guessing that as I've spoken here this morning, that for almost everyone here, someone has come to mind. You've thought of a neighbor or a Coworker or a family member, like they need to hear about Jesus. And if that's the case, here's what I want you to do in these next few moments, is I want you to think about, what's my next step with that person? Do I need to invite them over? Do I need to go to coffee with them? Do I need to ask them to go hunting with me so I can spend some time with them? Do I need to learn more about their story? Have I already had spiritual conversations and I need to pick those up again, right? What's my next step with this person here? So spend a few moments and and think about that. who have gone before us, who did 
faithfully carry out your mission. And we benefited from that. And so, Lord, would you use us now to help others meet you, find you, know you, and uh, come into relationship with you. Thank you for loving us so beautifully and so perfectly, so completely. And I pray that uh, the love that you have for us would be showered upon the people that we see and, and do life with each and every day. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.